one cold and snowy weekend about five years ago at Beat Expo in Sanford, Connecticut, I was introduced to a new writer from my very favorite place on earth, and everybody knows where that is, Liverpool, England. And like all the Scousers that I've met, he was warm and kind, extremely witty and wry, and you know what? Just plain fun to be around, and I mean that. But unlike some Scousers a few years ago when the Beatles were kind of being pushed back, He wasn't dismissive of the Beatles. Instead, he really held his native heroes in high regard, and that's fortunate for all of us in the Beatles world because he took that affinity for the group and he put it to work, and he spent nine years, nine years, researching and writing a book about the Fab Four and the impact that his hometown of Liverpool had on them. And that book, which is now an institution in Beatles scholarship, was called Liddy Pool. Well, since the very successful release of Liddy Pool, the author has become one of the regular stars of the Fest for Beatles fans. And not only that, he was instrumental in saving Ringo's home in Liverpool from destruction and he worked so, 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 so hard to get Brian Epstein into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And on top of all of that, started the largest, he may correct me on that, but it's, I'm sure, one of the largest Beatles websites around called the Beatles website. He's going to tell you about that. All the while, pinning a second remarkable book, The Fab 104, not The Fab Four, but The Fab 104, opening our eyes to the many, many, many people who paved the way for the Beatles and made their success possible. What he did in that book was gave us not the same old myths you've heard a thousand times before, but the straight story about how that came to be. Now, these days, he's busy with two big projects, a new film project that he's helping to promote, and a very intriguing book that's on its way to you. So, a Mythbuster a careful researcher, my friend, one heck of a great guy who would be there for you through thick and through thin. Help me welcome to the program my buddy, Dave Bedford. Hey, Dave. Hey, Jude. Um, I don't think I can afford an introduction like that. (laughs) (laughs) How much is that going to cost me? You've earned it by all the emails (laughs) you've had to get from me and all the times you've been with my head crying, oh, Dave, oh, Dave, through the years. (laughs) As what friends are for. You're absolutely right, and you're a great friend. But besides that, you are an amazing researcher, and I, I really appreciate all the hard work you've gone to to bust Beatles myths. That's not easy to do, is it? It's not, but it's great fun to do. It is. It really is. It is, but it's it's so so hard. Well, usually what I do on the show is start by talking about the author's first book and second book, and we work up with the new one. But I know what you're doing with your new book, and you and Ed Jackson and I have talked over the years about it. It's so exciting that I want to start with that first. Tell us about your new book, what it's about, what the title is, and and what's going on. Okay, well, there's, um, it actually came out of, as the Fab 104 came out of Liddypool, the new book sprung out of the Fab 104. Um, and I, I was asked uh, by a good friend of mine, Gary Popper, he said, you know, nobody's ever put down all the different musicians, but particularly all the different drummers the Beatles had. And we got this discussion going, and he said, 
do you know what? We should do a book just on the drummers. And we thought, great idea. Because as well as all the early drummers that I, I mentioned in the, the 504 book, obviously you've got to bring in to that mix uh, Jimmy Nichol as well. He's got a fabulous story to tell. Um, so we started work batting it around and we'd come up with the uh, final title of Looking for the Fourth Beetle. Which, whenever I've mentioned it to anybody, they go, Fourth Beetle? There were four Beetles. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Yes, or were there? <laughs> so, the idea is, it's, it's the story of the drummers who put the beat behind the Fab Three. Because John, Paul and George were together at the end of 1957. We're going to tell the story of 14 drummers. Yeah. They, they picked and they mixed and eventually, by hook or by crook, they ended up with Ringo, who, of course, turned out to be the perfect fit for them. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was not an easy ride. No. You know, and it wasn't easy just even for Ringo to get that position. So, you know, it, it's a fascinating story just of the drummers. That's what we're doing. We're concentrating just on the search for the fourth people. That is so cool. Okay, so I, I off the top of my head, you know, I'm thinking to Tommy Moore, of course, and Johnny Gustafson and all that. But did you get to talk to, like, Colin Hanton maybe? Or how about that, that guy, Ronnie, that the Beatles asked to come up on stage one night when they took volunteers from the audience? Well, funnily enough, um, I, was at, I was with Colin on Friday night. We had, um, there was a big event down at the Beatles story for the uh, 25th anniversary. So I was chatting with Colin um, and Pete Best was there as well. And Pete Best band were playing. Um, so that, Colin only lives about five minutes from me, just nope. the other side of Penny Lane. So I'm going around to see him probably next week. Um, oh. But I, I see him quite regularly anyway. Um but very exciting, as well as I spoke to Andy White, who's the session drummer for Love Me Do. Um, I did that for the 504 book. Uh, last week, I sat down with Johnny Hutchinson from the Big Three. Oh, gosh. And, of course, Johnny Hutch first sat in when they were Silver Beatles back in May 1960. Um, and it's the famous photos where Johnny does not look impressed at all, and he wasn't. Mm-mm. So being forced to sit in with them until Tommy Moore turned up late, eventually. Um, and then, of course, in the summer of 1962, so, of course, when John Paul and George decided to get rid of Pete, Johnny Hutchinson was one of the first drummers they asked, uh, and Johnny famously turned them down, saying he wouldn't join the Beatles for a big clock. <laughs> uh, and lots of other things. His, his language is interesting, so I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. With, uh, the other bits you don't need to know. <laughs> uh, but he said... <laughs> There's no way he was going to join the Beatles because he was in the big three. Yeah. You know, and he said, you know, you couldn't make a better sound than they were making. Yeah. And they were one of the top groups in Liverpool by, by a long way. Very, very good band. Um, so I had a real in-depth conversation with Johnny. So that would be a, a fascinating exclusive. Um, and a, a few others we're hoping to, uh, to find and to talk to, including trying to find anybody who knows Ronnie the Ted. Yeah. Our, our search goes on. And we're going to do, hopefully very soon, um, a call out all across Merseyside to see if anybody was either there that night or who knows who Ronnie the Ted was. We've been searching for years. He's a legend. He is a legend. He is. Well, see, this is what I love about your books. You talk to the primary sources. I mean, the fact that you've talked to Colin, you've talked to Johnny, you t- you have talked to the people who were there. And I, I know that you happen to be very, very close friends with Pete Best. So I assume that Pete's been helping you as well. 
Pete's always great. I was um, had a nice chat with him on on Friday after the uh, after the performance. Brilliant as ever. And anybody who can say that Pete Best was a lousy drummer just has to watch him. You know, he's still at a, at a grand old age, well into his seventies, and a grandfather is still a brilliant drummer. Very very good. So um, that's one of those myths that I love to say to people. Just look at the evidence. I've, I've spoken to so many drummers and musicians in Liverpool who saw him and said he was a great drummer. He so, was? He was? Yeah. Well, I had him on my radio show back when I was on Beatles Rama. And yeah. I, fortunately, I could play the music then. So I would play his version of the Beatles song and then Ringo's. Yeah. And, then, and we did this three times in a row. Yeah. And Pete's quite quite good. I mean, you can't... It had nothing to do with the drumming. Exactly. And that's one thing. that We're going to so much detail in um, the fourth Beatle book, um, that whole Pete being replaced by Ringo. They're going to more detail than anybody's done before. And there's some... It's almost like doing a forensic examination mm-hmm. and investigation, um, getting into the, the finer detail of contracts, what was agreed when, um, and some fascinating information which has never been revealed before. Oh, it's, uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. Oh, I love that! I can't wait to read that. Well, can people pre-order the book? Are you ready for them to do that yet? And if so, how can they do it? Um, not yet. Um, looks like we're going to be doing a Kickstarter campaign for the, for this book. Um, so there'll be information. So keep in touch with my website at fab104.com. I'll have all the information there. Uh, we're hoping to do it. So then you'll be able to pre-order. There'll be lots of goodies. And uh, that'll be launching very, very soon. Okay. Well, I'm telling you right here on radio that I'm donating a copy of Should Have Been There and She Loves You First Edition and the Doors of Liverpool poster and the John Lennon T-shirt as a prize for people who donate. So we want to get in there and wow. get that book going. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, I that appreciate you. And I can't, besides, I'm being selfish. I want the book. <laughs> <laughs> I need I it for research. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, before we get to this great new film that you're doing, and I've seen the trailer, and it's an amazing film, tell everybody about the Beatles website because I know everybody that's listening to this show wants to join if they're not a member already. Yeah, so um, if you just go to my website, um, fab104.com. Um, all the updates will be there. We're planning a Kickstarter campaign, so you're going to find out all about that very, very soon. So any updates, anything you need to know, all the information about the new book will be there. Well, we cannot wait. Absolutely can't wait. It's going to be a great book, and I know you're pouring your heart into it because this is a project that means a lot to you. So, yay, can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it, it does. I get so passionate about everything when I do it. I get stuck in it. takes over my life. And that's the way it should be, absolutely. Okay, now, Dave, before we talk about the film, and I can't wait to share this with people because I saw the trailer, and, I mean, this is a phenomenal film, but you also created and you manage one of the biggest Beatles websites around. Tell us about that because I know everybody wants to join. Sure, it's uh, called thebeatleswebsite.com. Nice and simple uh, to remember. Even I can remember that one. Um <laughs> And you can sign up, and we have the, the latest Beatles news is on there every day. 
All right, so Dave, before we get to your film, and I can't wait for people to hear about this film. I saw the trailer. It's fantastic. But you also helped to create and you manage one of the largest Beatles websites. It's an extremely cool site. Tell everybody about it. Uh, well, the site's called thebeatleswebsite.com. Nice and easy to remember. Um, and we've got all the latest Beatles news comes in at least twice a day. Wow. Um, we've also got links to our Beatles social network on Facebook. You can come and join. We've got hundreds of Beatles fans on there. Um, and we do a regular newsletter as well. There's a free version. Um, or if you want even more information, there's one for a couple of dollars a month. Uh, and you just get the latest information, what's happening in the Beatles world, particularly with um, all the Beatles authors around the world that have been writing all these fabulous books, and we try and help each other. And it's a good way to find out what's going on. So it's a great place to come to. Just remember, thebeatleswebsite.com. It is fantastic, and I love what you're doing with the authors. You're being so helpful to everyone. You're not taking a penny for this. You're helping authors promote their books and get the word out there, and that is so needed. You know, when you and I started, there wasn't a place like that for New Beatles authors to go to, and that's a that's a very cool and sweet thing you're doing for people, so thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure. As you know, we all help each other, you know, and we get together at the festivals and stuff, and we always have fun. And we've each got a different little niche, a little area of specialization. So it just means we just help each other because all we're going to do is help the Beatles fans out there get the best books. That's right. That's exactly right. We're very we're a family, you know, very yeah. supportive of one another, and that's a that's a really good thing. Well, this film that you have just worked with is amazing. It's called The City That Rocked the World, and that can be none other than our own Liverpool. And it's a film that you showed at the Fest for Beatles fans this past March. Of course, I didn't get to see it because I never leave my booth, for, not even for a short bathroom break. I'm stuck there every second that it's open. But I heard people loved it. Tell us about the film. Um, well, it, it took quite a few years to make. Um, and the idea was to create a film which told the story of the Liverpool music scene after the Second World War. So really going from... Um, the modern jazz scene, obviously where the, the Cabin Club and many other jazz clubs were there. Um, then, of course, the music that brought the Beatles to us, where we started with the skiffle, then the influence of the American rock and roll. Then, of course, there's a massive section on, on the Beatles and the other great Mersey Beat bands that were around, some famous, some not so famous. But then it's not just about the musicians that inspired the Beatles, it's the musicians that the Beatles inspired yeah. So it takes the story through the 60s, but then into the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and brings it up to date. Because Liverpool is in the, the Guinness Book of World Records, for having the most number one records for any city. It's wow. like 50, 53 number ones. Woo! And it, it's great for me because um, the reason why I love to interview everybody um, is obviously I'm a second generation Beatles fan. So it's it's such a pleasure for me to go and meet all these guys. But then... What I love about the film is that it's picking up on the music that I had around me in Liverpool when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, some of the fantastic bands down in Matthew Street when there was Eric's and the Cavern wasn't there. There was a, an amazing music scene going on. Then, you know, world famous ones like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Orchestral Manus in the Dark. Sure. A lot of these other bands are featured. And it ends up with one of the members of the Wombats, a great Liverpool band who were trained at Lipper. 
Yeah. Which of course is Paul McCartney's fame school. Right. And he's still saying, as a young lad of about 20, that he is still inspired by the music the Beatles were making 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It is a it is a fascinating film. And the trailer, I was riveted. I was just going to peek at the trailer and see what it was all about. And, of course, you're locked into it once you start yeah. seeing it. So tell people, number one, where they can see the trailer because everybody will be listening to this show on the download. You and I are recording this, and yeah. then they'll be listening to it live tonight at 9 and then on download. How can they see that trailer? Uh, the best thing to do is uh, go on the website of getbackfilms.co.uk um, and you look for the film. It's been retitled Get Back to the City That Rocked the World. Oh, okay. Um, so, but if you put that into Google, you'll find it very easily. If you go on to getbackfilms.co.uk, again, you can see the three-minute trailer on there and it really gives you a fabulous insight into the film. It's, it's a riveting film. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Are you going to show it again at the Chicago Beatles Fest? Uh, no, sadly, I can't make the Chicago one this year um, because of my eldest daughter getting married. Oh, we'll miss you. They won't oh. be the, it's going to be not the same. <laughs> I wish I could be there. Um, but we, are, we do have, at the end of August, uh, the Liverpool International Beetle Week. Right. And we've got a very special event that we're planning around this Get Back film. More details will follow. But Ooh. it's going to be very, very exciting. And do you know where you're going to be showing it, or is that part of the mystery? That'll be part of the mystery. I but think I, be, I know where you might be showing it. If it comes off, it will be staggering. Yahoo! I can't. I wish <laughs> I could go to that. <laughs> that would be too cool for school. I love it. Well, we've been talking about your breaking news projects, your your new book. Looking is it looking for the fourth beetle or searching for the fourth beetle? Looking for. Looking for the fourth Beatle, and then the city that rocked the world, or get back to the city that rocked the world. But we haven't talked about how you got from there to here. The two books that really put you on the map, not only as a great Beatles author, but as a researcher. And for people that don't know about these books, I don't know where you've been, under a rock, on the planet Mars, but they are beautiful books. They look like coffee table books, large, hardback color photos, gorgeous books, but they're not the fluff that you find in coffee table books. These are very serious books about the Beatles and Beatles scholarship. The first one, of course, was Liddy Pool, followed by the second one, the Fab 104. Now, Liddy Pool, man, when you look at the reviews for this book, they're unequaled. Rod Davis called it a realistic picture of what really happened, and he should know since he was one of the original quarrymen. Pete Best called it totally enlightening. And, I mean, it goes on and on, the rave reviews about it. And you really worked hard to put this book together. But there's a story behind the story of how you started writing Liddy Pool. And if you ask me, writing that book was, as they say on Live at the BBC, in the hands of God, now, in the hands of God and the laps of the Beatles, because when you were 35, your life took a very unexpected twist that led you to become a Beatles researcher and writer. Tell us that story. Um, well, I left school and I joined an insurance company uh, called Norwich Union over here, uh, worked my way up uh, and became a, a sales and marketing manager, which is a really good job, which I enjoyed. Um, and it, it meant from 
moving around a little bit and ending back up in, in Liverpool uh, without leaving, which, is, which was nice. Um, everything was going great. And then I started having a bit of pain in my shoulder, went to the doctors and said, mm, you might have arthritis. Yeah. Pain started getting worse. He started throwing tablets at me down and down and down. Um, and then it came to June 2000 and my doctor said, right, that's it, I'm signing you off for a month. You're in no fit state to do anything. Oh. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was in agony with all, all kinds of muscular and joint pain. Uh, signed me off for a month, which was a shock. The month became three months, which became six months, 12 months, 18 months. Um, and eventually said, you've got to have a face it, you're not going to go back to work. Oh. I spent over two years being misdiagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, they ended up sending me for a second opinion. And I was diagnosed with, uh, diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which is something I hadn't heard of before. And not many people have and it's a, a muscular condition. It gives you chronic pain in every joint, tendon, ligaments, etc. in your body. Um, sometimes it can flare up and go, but with mine, unfortunately, it was full-blown, 24-7. And it means you can't sleep, and you have this horrible muscular pain all the time, other bits of complicated stuff. So it took me a while, but eventually they got me onto a balance where I take somewhere between 16 and 20 tablets a day. And my GP who was absolutely wonderful, he said, right, physically, you're really going to slow down. So that meant no more sport, all that was gone, no more long walks, anything. He said, but you've got to find something to keep your brain active because your choice is you can sit in the corner, feel sorry for yourself, or you can go and do something. Um, yes, yeah, so I was involved with Dovedale Primary School, which is where John Lennon and George Harrison went and is where my daughters uh, have all attended. And in the summer of 2000, we were trying to raise money for the playground. So I got involved with the charity. And we ended up with a substantial donation of £30,000 from Yoko Ono. Wow. And um, Yoko has been over to the school a number of times since. Whenever she's here, she does things with the school. I, I got to meet her a few years back. And so I wrote the story for a Beatles magazine. And I said to them, you know, do you have anybody covering stories in, in Liverpool? And he said, no. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. So that's how it started. As I gave up work, it was something just to do for a bit of fun. Right. And that was in, in 2000. And from then, I just had to find out more and more about the Beatles Liverpool. And it sort of became my obsession and also my therapy at the same time. It, yeah, and it's meant so much to everybody in the Beatles world because before you, the only book that ever had come out about Liverpool and the Beatles was Liverpool the Fifth Beatle by W. Pitts. But you took that kernel of the connection between Liverpool and the Beatles and you began to study how Liverpool and all of the culture of Liverpool affected their personalities, their music, the genesis of the group, and you spent hours and hours doing this thing that I love to do too, which is Beatles myth busting and, and trying to keep myths from overwhelming the truth. And that is very, very difficult to do. Tell us about some of the steps you took to get the story straight about the Beatles. And what I decided to do was I thought it was strange that there was no book really out there just about the Beatles and Liverpool. It seems as this is where they're from. And I realised that because I'd grown up with it all around me, um, having grown up in the Dingle, literally by the bottom of the street where Ringo was born, um, I'd gone to the school that Ringo went to, St. Silas. I lived in the Dingle until I was 24. Uh, when I was married, we moved out to Mossley Hill. 
So we lived the last 26 years just off Penny Lane. And I say our three daughters uh, have gone to their school. So I've had it around me all the time. So I thought, why has nobody documented this in any great detail? All the books were just telling the same stories and not always accurately. So I thought, well, I can from a geography point of view and explain the difference between Ringo growing up in the Dingle and John growing up in Walton, five or six miles apart, but light years apart. Right. Um, the, the, you know, the mix of the people you know, from working class to middle class, massive difference. And I thought, okay, I can do that, but I want to know the story from the people who were there. And that's one of the beauties of living in Liverpool. So many people are still around. So I just took as much time as I could to go and find the people who were there and get the story from them and get it straight. And that meant reading oh, so many books, but then studying maps and getting as many interviews as I could. Sometimes with people who weren't famous, but tracking down school friends, uh, John and George, for example, from Dovedale, mm-hmm. I suppose are some lovely people. I even managed to find one of John Lennon's teachers, Harry Holmes, who yeah. by that time was in his early 90s, but he was as sharp as a pin. He remembered everything. And so it was just nice to get the story firsthand from the people who were there. And you did that with the Fab 104 as well. I mean, for both books, you made it your business to do primary research, not just the secondary. As you said, you had to do the secondary reading the books and taking notes. But then that led you to primary research, and that's what makes your book so different. One of the things that you do in Liddy Pool that's fascinating, I'd never seen it before in all of my bazillions of, of books that I've been through to do the John Lennon series, you take people through the 27 steps of the Beatles, from the Quarrymen all the way to the Beatles. How long did it take you to compile those 27 phases of the Beatles, and where did you get that info? Well, that, it was so easy, um, which is what I thought, because somebody said to me, okay, so how did you go from being John Lennon's Quarrymen to being the Fab Four? I said, it's easy. It was, oh, it's actually, it's not that easy, is it? <laughs> and I think I must have chopped and changed that chapter over a three-year period, just going backwards and forwards and thinking, hang on, so what time did, when did they use that name? Who was in the group at the time? Who changed when? And suddenly, all these names started appearing, and I, and I thought, I can't summarise this adequately just in text. So I thought, so I came up with this idea of doing the grid, which shows each of the musicians, and then the left-hand side, you've got the date, and whatever the band name was at the time, and then you just follow the grid, and you can see which musicians were involved at what time. And, of course, you get down to the very, very end is when Ringo appears at the end of the story. And it just all jumped out at me. I thought, okay, now I can visualize it. So that had to go in the book so people could see how they they ended up with so many different musicians. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It's one of my very – I love the whole book, but that's one of my very favorite parts. It was very difficult to do. Well, let's set the stage for the Fab 104. You're going to – talking, of course, about the people that helped you with Liddy Pool – but also the Fab 104. Give us, like, say, eight to ten or, or as many as you can remember of the people who helped make these books possible, the people you talked to. Um, with some people like um, Julia Baird, Alan Williams, Pete Best, all the guys from the Quarrymen, 
Alistair Taylor, Sam Leach, um, Tony Barrow, Chaz Newby, Ken Brown, Pauline Sutcliffe, uh, Andy White, Bill Harry. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Wow. It's not just regurgitating what people have put in other books. It's my interviews with them, which I'm putting into the book. So as you say, it, it's firsthand from the interviews that I've done. That's incredible. That is amazing. Now, I don't, Liddy Pool is not available anymore, right? The last couple of copies are just about sold out, yeah. But are there enough, if people wanted to order, are there a couple that they could order still? Um, I th- I've probably got about half a dozen here <laughs> in my house. Okay, I think that's jump, about it. Jump on it, people. If you want a copy, you better get with it as soon as you hear this show. And that the success of Liddy Pool plunged you into the Fab 104. What excited you about this new project? What was your premise? Uh, the premise is what we've just been talking about with the uh, the Fab 27. There was there was so much interest in that one chapter in Liddypool about the 27 musicians. I thought there's even more of a story to hear because I didn't want to just find all the different musicians who were in the, the various lineups between the Quarrymen and the Fab Four. And I was thinking, I remember the people who taught me to play when I started playing guitar. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll go and find the people who taught the Beatles how to play. So I went to track them down, and I found some fascinating people who who taught the, the Beatles to play the various instruments, like um, Arthur Pendleton. Yeah. Virtually nobody had heard of. He taught John to play the harmonica. Right. And Ian James, who taught Paul to play guitar, but he also gave lessons to John and George. Um, and I was finding all these fascinating people. So I've got all the ones in the groups, any of the groups that they were in before joining the Beatles, plus anybody who played on stage with them or had taught them to play or had a direct influence on the Beatles' musical career. And it ended up as 104 by coincidence. It just kept going from the 27, went up to 36, 42, 56, 70-odd, up to about 90. And it ended up at 104, and I thought, it's almost too perfect. From a Fab Four to a Fab 104. I so love I've got it. 104 people. It's cool. That is so so cool. It, it is absolutely perfect. I did the same thing. I was going to write one book, and then yeah. it, was, it was too heavy for anybody to carry. And then you know, same thing. But you, you really get into it. Well, one of the things that fascinated me was your documentation of when George Harrison joined the group. When I wrote, should have been there. What I was told at that time was that George auditioned in February of 1958, and his first real appearance was at the Morgue Skiffle Cellar in March of 1958. But that is absolutely not true, and I'm going to have to go back and revise my book because tell the real story. Well, when I did Liverpool, exactly the same as you. You know, the evidence we had had was that uh, one of his first performances was at the Morgue Skiffle Cellar in the March. Right. Um, I was talking to Rod Davis from the Quarrymen. And he was looking at when Eric Griffiths left the Quarrymen. And the reason he left was because George joined. And what Eric did was he put his guitar down and he went and joined the Merchant Navy. Well, that meant he qualified on January 58. So he must have signed up somewhere around the middle of December 1957. So I got a of his uh, Merchant Navy record to show when he qualified and what ships he got onto. And that was exactly right. He joined up somewhere around the middle of December 1957. So therefore... If he had auditioned outside the Wilson Hall, the Quarrymen had played there on the 7th of December 1957. So the likelihood is 
that's when the audition was, and when he was offered the job in the Quarrymen, it was December 57, and not February 58. That is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Now, you see, you're making me have to go back and revise my book. What am I going to do with you? <laughs> I want to do my own as well. Don't worry. I love it. I love it. Now, one people that one story that people think they know is the story about Paul meeting John at the Wilton Garden Fate, but they totally don't know the story after reading the Fab 104 because I can tell you they're missing a piece. Tell them what they're missing. Well, the guy I mentioned just now, Ian James, um, fascinating character. Ian was Paul's school friend from the Liverpool Institute. And he taught Paul to play guitar. Uh, and Paul's acknowledged this. And it's a lovely story of how Paul and Ian are still friends. And when Ian auctioned the guitar that Paul learned to play, um, Paul gave him a letter, took it to the auction house, and the guitar sold for over £300,000. Um, Ian's got a fantastic retirement and pension fund. and He's a lovely, lovely guy. And so I had a long chat with him. And he was telling me about the time he and Paul would hang around together, learning guitar together, and the fact that he'd given some lessons to John and to George. And the reason was because Ian went with Paul to the, the Walton Garden Fete on the 6th of July, 1957. So Ian was there on the day that John met Paul. We've got another eyewitness whose story hasn't really been told. And it's another fascinating part of the jigsaw because the only way to document that date is to get everybody's accounts which are all slightly different yeah. and come up with the best that you can from all of them absolutely and so if I, if you just keep doing this kind of thing and now you've got another eyewitness i am never going to be able to quit revising these books at some point you have to stop i'm sorry <laughs> i apologize <laughs> it's fascinating it is fascinating and, and the fab 104 is a gorgeous book tell people how they can get a copy and um, nice and simple just go to my website of fab 104 that's 104.com and all the information there you can buy it there and you get a signed copy from me i love it and how can they follow you on facebook and twitter as well i'm all over it um twitter at liddypool dave so a nice connection with the first book. Um, on Facebook, I'm on so many different pages. I've got my Fab 104 page, uh, also for Liddy Pool. Look up either of those. You'll find me nice and easy. I'm always there. Well, I know because I see you on Twitter. You and I are always tweeting back and forth. So at <laughs> Liddy Pool Dave with L-I-D-D-Y, at Liddy Pool Dave, and you will get Dave Bedford, and you can follow him because he's going to be announcing that brand-new book, Looking for the Fourth Beetle, very, very soon. Well, the clock's telling me we are almost out of time, but give us a one-sentence summary for Liddy Pool and then a one-sentence summary for the Fab 104 so people can have that in their minds as we close the show. Uh, my pleasure. Well, Liddy Pool birthplace of the Beatles and the phrase I had for that was to understand the Beatles you've got to understand Liverpool right um, and that means you've got to come from here really yeah. uh, the Fab 104 is the musical evolution of the Beatles so how they went from being non-musicians to join the group and becoming the Fab Four as we know them all right I love that that should be clear as day so go and get those books tonight now next week on the john lennon hour we just so happen to have a pretty special friend of yours on the program dave 
Michael yeah. Hill. Tell everybody who Michael is and what you two have worked on together. Uh, well, Michael um, is featured in the Fab 104. He was John Lennon's school friend from the age of five. He went through Dovedale and Quarry Bank and had a very special part in introducing John Lennon to rock and roll. Uh, his story is so great um, that we've been able to get his book published with the great help of Rand. Thank you to Rand as well. Um, Michael's book published. It's a fabulous book. John Lennon, the boy who became a legend. Um, and you, you'll just love talking to him. He's a great guy. And an amazing story. Really amazing. We are looking forward to it. I really can't wait. And he will be on next Thursday night. Well, Dave, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Ty times three or four. I always love visiting with you. You know that. We could talk forever and ever if Skype, <laughs> Skype wasn't freezing up on us. And I can't wait to see you. I'm sorry you're not coming to Chicago, but you'll be at the Fest for Beatles fans in New York next March, right? I will be there, definitely. Okay. Have a I'm lovely back. wedding with your daughter. And <laughs> thank you. Hi to Alex, and thank you so much for being on the show tonight. My pleasure. Take care. See you soon. Okay, listeners, read Dave's eye-opening books, Liddy Pool and The Fab 104, See the City That Rocked the World, or Get Back to the City That Rocked the World. Follow him at Liddy Pool Dave on Twitter, and Dave and I both appreciate your being with us tonight. Ta-ra, and shine on. <laughs>